Ruth is set um, uh, during the time of the judges. So this is after they have entered the land of Canaan. Uh, Joshua has died. It's some period in between Joshua's death um, and not too long after because Obed, uh, or sorry, uh, Boaz is the son of Rahab, the prostitute at, who was in Jericho. And so this was not very long after the conquest of Canaan. This is shortly after the death of Joshua, early on in the time of the judges. So with that, let me read to us from Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Then I'm going to skip down um, to verse 19. So the two of them, this is Ruth and Naomi now, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray this morning. Father, we pray that your word would be powerful. We pray that it would be helpful. We pray that you would be glorified. In Christ's good name, amen. So usually I don't spend a lot of time dealing with language bits uh, in my sermons because I find men to spend all their time talking about language to be a little bit full of themselves. Um, but it's helpful here, I think, to know some things about the Hebrew that's going on that we can't see in English um, because of various translation issues. You just can't translate everything that you want to translate. Um, and so a few things. Bethlehem is just two words smushed together, house bread, house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. It's literally that. And so you'll see that word Beth in the start of many different towns, and it just means house, home. So Bethel is house of God. Bethlehem is house of bread. And then Ephrathah. So you've heard this, may remember this, we're going to talk about this next week in Micah. You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and here they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. Ephrathah is probably the land, kind of the region that Bethlehem is set in. And Ephrathah comes from the root word, which means fruitful. And so you can think of Bethlehem Ephrathah as the fruitful house of bread. That's basically what it means if we could read the Hebrew and it could come across to us 
in English. The other thing that I want you to know is that Elimelech, his name means God is king. So Melech in Hebrew is king, and El is God. So Elimelech is God is king. So that's, that's your Hebrew lesson for the next five years. And I think it's helpful because it sets this kind of background thing going on in, in Ruth that's difficult to pick up on. Um, because Elimelech has this name that means God is king. And he lives in God's land, the promised land, Canaan, that they have just come into, that they have conquered, that they're living in. And he lives in Ephrathah, Bethlehem, the fruitful house of bread of the promised land of God. And they have just entered in. They have just seen the conquest. They watched probably the walls of Jericho fall. It's likely that they were either children or newly born after the conquest of Jericho. I mean, Boaz is the son of Rahab, who was in Jericho when it fell. We're not very long after seeing miraculous things and here Elimelech, this man whose name means God is king, does something pretty unbelievable. He leaves the house of bread and goes to the land of Moab. Now, you may not know this because it's hard to keep track of names because there's lots of them and they're all foreign to us. But Moab is one of the sons of Lot by way of his daughter, the incestuous relationship that Lot's daughters had with him. They produced two sons. Ammon and Moab. So the Ammonites and the Moabites, which were two of the worst enemies of Israel in the history of Israel. And they were so bad that in Deuteronomy, God says, the Moabites and the Ammonites will not enter and dwell in the land of Canaan. Even to the 10th generation, you will not let them be with the people of God. They were the worst of the worst. And they had a history going all the way back to Lot and they were cursed by God. And here, this guy, whose name is God is King, lives in God's house of bread in the promised land after the conquest. And there's a famine that comes. So they live in the house of bread, but there is no bread. And what happens is this man, Elimelech, decides, I know how to procure bread. We will go and live in the land of the enemy, Moab. It's a faithless act. It's not an act of good for his family. It's much different than what happened. You might be thinking, well, there's other men who have left the land and went to a foreign place. Why isn't it like that? So Jacob would be one of those men. Jacob's son Joseph was kidnapped, sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, ends up second in command of Egypt, then a famine hits the land, and they're in the land of Canaan, Jacob is. And then they have to go to Egypt to get bread. And then Jacob moves his entire family, the entire clan of Israel at the time, moves to Egypt. So Jacob and his sons and all their wives, all their children, all that they have, all move together out of the land. But you have to remember, it had not been given yet fully to Jacob. It didn't belong to him yet. The conquest hadn't happened yet. And Jacob took the whole house of Israel with him. Elimelech did not take the whole house of Israel with him. He took his small family and left the rest of the people to their own fortunes. It was an act of abandonment of 
the promises of God, the hope of God that He would feed His people, the fact that God had promised over and over and over again, I will take you in a land flowing with milk and honey and full of grapes and pomegranates and food. And then he lives in a town called the house of bread and he doesn't have the faith to stay and to call on God to fill his belly. Instead, he goes to make his own way. It's similar to uh, you know when James talks about uh, the man made plans to go into a town and in this town I will do such and such and I will make this much profit and I'll go do this and I'll go do that and I'll go do this. And Elimelech basically said, God's not providing here in his house of bread. I will go make my own fortune in the land of Moab, in the land cursed by God. And the second thing that he forgets is not just that God has given them promises of physical food, but that God is also talking about spiritual children. The papers are all over the place this morning. That there is a danger that comes spiritually in entering the foreign land. Not only were the Moabites not the best people, uh, but they were actually responsible for one of, the, one of the worst catastrophes that happens during the 40 years in the Exodus. Numbers 22 to 24, 25, are about their conflict with Moab. And what happens during that conflict is Moab hires this man called Balaam. You know Balaam's ass? The, the prophet who's called upon to prophesy against the people of Israel and his donkey rebukes him. That story, that's Moab. That's Moab. Moab called a prophet to curse the people of God when they entered the promised land. They really do not like God or his people. And when Balaam refused to curse the people of Israel, Moab kept telling him, no, how about if we pay you this much, you'll say it. And Balaam's like, listen, you can give me that money. That's fine. You can give me those sheep. But I have to tell you what the Lord God says. And the Lord God says, you're not going to win. Okay, we'll give you this much. Yep, I'm still going to tell you, you're not going to win. Well, we'll give you this much. I think three different times they do this. And then right after this happens, right after Moab fails to curse God by way of Balaam, the sons of Israel begin marrying Moabite women. And a curse falls on Israel. And 24,000 people die because of this incestuous relationship with Moab. And it's ended when the famous story of Phineas spears a man of Israel and a Midianite woman in the temple courts who were doing things they ought not to be going anywhere in public. Um, he spears them through their bellies together and ends the curse of God, the 24,000 people who fell. That was all because of Moabite women. So this man, Elimelech, knowing that this happened in the desert, takes his family to Moab, where there is nothing but Moabite women and the gods that they serve. And they are not in the house of God anymore. They're not in the house of bread. And so Elimelech dies. And then his sons die after taking Moabite women. And you may be thinking, well, how do you know that this was a judgment of God, Joe? How do you know that it wasn't just happenstance that he left and then he died in Moab and his sons died in Moab. Well, a few things. One, two different times in Scripture, it says that to die in the land of Moab is a curse. That specifically, not just outside of Israel, but to die in the land of Moab is a sign that God has cursed you. And the second thing is right here in the book of Ruth. At the end of chapter 1, when Naomi is returning... 
And she says this stuff that, I know you guys talked about this in Bible study, um, whether or not Naomi was a bitter woman or whether she was not a bitter woman, right? So this is, this is the question, right? She says, God has dealt bitterly with me. So is, is Naomi being bitter when she says that? And I don't think so. So let's go to the end of Ruth 1. The two of them, Ruth and Naomi, went on to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? That whatever her appearance was, it was not good, both probably physically, but also materially. Elimelech, remember his name means God is king. Basically, anyone with the name king in their name in the Old Testament was a wealthy man. So he didn't get that king because the name God is king because he came from a poor family. He got that name because he was a wealthy man. They went out with money and left all the people of Israel back in Bethlehem in the famine to go make his own way, and then they ended up spending it all. They gained nothing in the land of Moab except the death of him and his two sons. And she comes back empty. So she's both poor, probably pretty aged just because of the stress of the situation of losing her husband and two sons in the course of 10 years. And then Naomi says to them, verse 20, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Notice she doesn't say, I am very bitter with the Almighty. She says, God has dealt bitterly with me. And so what she is doing is saying that God has judged me. He has dealt bitterly with me. Now, in, Roman, in Hebrews chapter 12, when God is talking about the discipline that sons receive who are his, it says, no discipline is pleasant at the time, but it's painful and unpleasant. That when you feel the discipline of the Lord, it's not a good thing. It feels bad. It's a bitter thing. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And then here's really the biggest clue that she knew it was God who did these things and that she had been humbled by them, not embittered by them. She says this, I went away full. She doesn't even blame her husband, Elimelech. She says, I participated in this sin. I didn't tell my husband, Elimelech, we shouldn't go. We should depend on God's promises. We should stay in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and the land that is fruitful, in Ephrathah. Even though there's a famine now, God has given us promises, Elimelech. She didn't do those things. She went away full. She went away. I went away. And then what does it say? And the Lord has brought me back. Yahweh has brought me back. She doesn't say, I went away, and then I came back. She also doesn't say, the Lord drove me away, or the Lord took me away, or I went because of the Lord. She says, I went away. I did this thing. And then the Lord dealt bitterly with me, and then he brought me back. And so she lays on God the sovereignty that he owns, which is that he has done something to humble her. And then if you look through the rest of the story, there's lots of things where Naomi, I think, shows great humility. She likely knows that she has redeemer kin in the land of Bethlehem. She doesn't forget that she's related to people. And yet she doesn't send Ruth to go try and get redeemed by Boaz. She doesn't presume upon God to save her in this way. But when Boaz does present himself, and does save her. This is what Naomi says. 
this is chapter 2. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and, and said, this, this man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That Naomi didn't take herself and Ruth and present herself to Boaz and say, hey, we need a kinsman redeemer. We need someone to come in and be the guy who saves our family. She depended on God to provide. She didn't go looking again. She didn't presume upon herself to make a path for redemption. But when it presents herself, she says, God is kind to the living, meaning her and Ruth, and the dead, her two sons and her husband, whose line was about to be cut off in Judah. Now, that's, that's not just my contention. Um, every commentary I read said the same thing, that Elimelech's sin was faithlessness and that Naomi was humbled to come back. And so I want to talk about two things with this. So when we're talking about the promises of God, the bread of heaven, Jesus being the bread of heaven. What does it look like to eat the bread of heaven? What are the marks of someone who goes to Christ and eats of him? And I would say this, humility is the mark. And it's the sort of humility that Naomi possesses. It's a humility to say, God has dealt with me according to my sins, and he has every right to do so. Now, this is different than being bitter about things. Um, if you talk to me long enough, you'll hear me speak of God in these sorts of ways. Um, I sinned in many ways growing up. You sinned in many ways growing up. And we all sinned this week in many ways. And the things that I'm most honest about, God being the judge of my life and having made life difficult for me and disciplined me because of my sins, are the things I am least bitter about in this life. But the things that I absolutely refuse to acknowledge God might be disciplining me in are the things I am most bitter about. And that truth has remained true for the last 20 years. If I tend to get bitter about something, it's because I refuse to say, God has done this. If, however, I say, God has done this because I have sinned, it's like this, this weight gets lifted off. I don't have to like be bitter about it because it's, I did this, I had a consequence, and God humbled me. It's an act of humiliation. It's saying, I don't deserve any of the good to the living or the dead, but God has done it despite what I did, despite what I did. And so the difference, I think, and the reason we want to think that Naomi is bitter is because we're often bitter about things that God has done in our lives to judge us. We don't ever like to say, that was the hand of God disciplining me because we think it makes God out to be I don't know, a moral monster of sorts, as though God doesn't have the right and the prerogative to discipline his children. And it robs God of his fatherhood. One of the ways he shows forth the fact that we are his children is that he disciplines us. And so Naomi, in the book of Ruth, declares God's fatherhood by saying, God has dealt bitterly with me. 
My name was Naomi, blessed and happy. God has dealt bitter with, bitterly with me. Call me bitter. I went out full. God has brought me back empty. I thought I could provide for myself. God has shown me I cannot. This is the base mark of Christianity. This is the base mark of what a Christian is. But oftentimes, instead of that sort of phrase, that sort of talk, we will immediately, and I'm, some of us have probably already went there, uh, I went there, we will go, what about Job? Job, bad things happened to Job, and he didn't do anything bad. He was a righteous man, you know. His children died. His stuff got taken away. And Job didn't say, I did this and then God brought me back. Job was righteous. And that is always what we do. We don't ever actually say, I am Job and I've done nothing wrong. But we always bring up Job as the exception. When any time we think, maybe God's dealing with, well, no. I mean, there's always Job. It's just bad things happen to good people. I don't know why things are happening like they're happening now. Job, Job, Job. And we would never be so proud to say, I am Job and righteous. But we would never be so humble to say, God is disciplining me. And that's really the difference. It is possible and it is likely true that sometimes in your life, the hard thing was not because of your particular sin. It wasn't a judgment. But it is a very bad mistake to not dwell on the question when you feel the discipline of God. To think, have I done? What have I done? How have I done? Is God leading me back to him? Have I trusted in my own two hands to do the thing rather than in God? Have I left the house of bread and the promises of God to go to the land of Moab that is cursed? Because I didn't think that anything bad would happen there. And then bad stuff happens. And we go, I have no idea. I have no idea why anything bad is happening to me. We're not Job all the time. We're not Job. Sometimes we're Naomi. Sometimes we're Elimelech. And that is the good news of the gospel. Because what happens? What happens to Naomi? Ten years go by. Her husband dies, her sons die. She has no one to carry on the family line. We have this unbelievable mercy given to us that all we have to do when this happens, when we have sinned, all we have to do is go back to the house of bread. What happens at the end of chapter one? What does it say? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem, the house of bread, at the beginning of the barley harvest. God didn't let her come back to Bethlehem and then beat her some more with another famine and say, yeah, that's right, be shamed, beat down. You don't get any of this. Look at how bad you were. She returned, and he went, barley harvest, not only barley harvest, but Boaz. Not only Boaz, but Redeemer. Not only Redeemer, but the line of Judah will be restored and the King David is two generations away. And you know who comes after King David is Christ the Lord. He didn't just kind of give her a sort of pat on the back for returning 
to the land of bread. He blessed her beyond her wildest imaginations. This is what Ruth says to her in chapter 4. Am I not more to you than seven sons? Am I not more to you than seven sons? That this blessing was beyond what Naomi could have ever hoped or imagined. She, just like the prodigal son, didn't come back in triumph. She came back humiliated. And God just lavished on her. Lavished on her the riches of his word. And this is the Christian hope. This is the Christian every week when we come and we confess our sins. It's supposed to be humiliating. That's the whole point of our confessions every Sunday. Is that it should make you feel uncomfortable that we have to do it every week. And then after we have confessed, the lavish promises of God heaped upon you. You will not be forever cast off. You will not be forever cast off. You will not always be in the land of Moab. You come back to me, I will heap on the promises. I will fill your bellies. Oh, I forgot to write it down. Oh, wait, no, I wrote it in here. Sorry. I read a, a, a little book by John Piper this week called Ruth, of all things. And it's a poem that John Piper wrote. And this is part of what he wrote. And none could stay his hand or make undone the deed of God. This, he's talking about the judgment of God in famine. He had his aims, and one of these was Ruth. God names whom he will have and moves the earth to bring them to himself. Now, one of the stories here that I haven't talked much about, I've been talking about Naomi, Elimelech, is Ruth. That's who the book is named after, right? Ruth was a Moabite. Remember all the things I just said about Moab. It was not a good place. The Moabite women were notorious for destroying 24,000 in Israel. They had a bad reputation, okay? These are not good women to be wed to. And yet somehow, miraculously, this woman from Moab, from Moab, the desolate place, the cursed place, the place for 10 generations that was not to dwell in Israel, is redeemed. Amen. Is redeemed. And how did that happen? How did that happen? The sin of Elimelech and Naomi, leaving the land and the promises, going to dwell in the land of Moab, Against, against God's good word to them. And God redeemed it. And so here is the word to you about your sin. You can come back to God in humility and God will bless you abundantly. Sometimes though, we dwell in our sins in ways that are not helpful and not good. We can make our sins to be bigger than the providence of God. That my hand in my sin has stopped the good hand of God. Right? This is sometimes how we think, how we feel. We remember this certain thing and we think this thing right here, this moment, this person, this fight, these words, this anger, ruined it forever. Your son, your daughter, your cousin, 
your neighbor. You think, my sin stopped the providence of God. No good thing can now happen to that person because of me. Moab was redeemed because of the sins of Elimelech. And this doesn't mean the sins of Elimelech were good. This means God redeems the sins of his people in ways we cannot fathom. I have many sins on my record. Things of which I don't like to speak or think about. One of them, so I graduated from the pastor's college up in Bloomington last year. Trinity Reformed. This church that my wife and I love to the core of our being. This pastor, Tim Bailey and Mary Lee. Unbelievable love for them. And then this other guy, Stephen Baker, and his wife, Sebra. Ten years ago-ish, 11 years ago, I was accepted into that pastor's college. I moved to Bloomington. And then I got angry at Stephen Baker, the dean of the college. And I thought, you turd. I don't like you. I'm moving back. And I left. I did not go to pastor's college in 2010, even though I was accepted into that college. I mean, I was in. I moved. I was ready to start school. I was a month away from classes. And I got mad, and I sinned, and I left. God could have let nothing good come out of that. And it was a difficult year that year afterwards. From 2010 to 2011, very hard. Driving truck, out on the road, six months, it was awful. Awful. And then I got this other job where I was working nights, working 9 p.m. to 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning. It was an hour commute each way. It was just as awful as being on the road. And then God answered my prayer for a job that didn't like try to kill me at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I got a better driving job. And then within a month, do you know who I met? Do you know who I was hanging out with? Do you know who we started dating? My wife! Who sits in the back with my five children? That would have never happened had I not been a stubborn, nasty man to Stephen Baker 11 years ago. That doesn't excuse the sin. The sin was real. It does mean God redeems us in ways we could never imagine. Despite our sins, despite what we think we've screwed our lives up and we have made them irredeemable, we can't make our lives irredeemable. You cannot do it. God can always redeem if you come back to the house of bread, which is Christ, finally. This is our hope. This is the whole hope of Christmas, that Christ came and he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me will never hunger again. Come and eat, come and eat. And so we do. This is by far, you know, I... Sometimes I don't enjoy writing sermons. I really had a good time this week. Ruth was just a lot of fun for me. Uh, I liked reading. I liked thinking about all the different things that happened with Naomi and Elimelech and the fact that there is no possible way to outrun the providential help of God to those who return to him. You, cannot, you can't do it. If you sin, come back. Come back. The house of bread is open. 
always open, and you will always be fed, and it will always be far more than you could hope or imagine. Because our God is a good Father. He does not beat us continually. He disciplines us, and then He gives us good gifts. It's what all fathers do. Discipline and gift giving. That's what I have for us this morning. And then Ruth had a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who had a son named David, who we know as king. Amen. Why don't you stand this morning? We will sing our final hymn together. Um, good Christian men rejoice. Let me, why don't you stand and I'll, I'll begin praying and then we'll sing together. Father, we are very grateful that you are with us, for us, not against us. We are very grateful that your forgiveness knows no bounds. And that no matter what our sin, no matter what our discontent is, no matter how much we don't trust you, no matter how many times we leave the good land to go to some foreign land, thinking we will prosper there, that you are always there with bread, ready to make things not just right, but unbelievable. Father, give us faith for these things. Give us hope for these things. Bring us back over and over again to your son, Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life. We pray that you would help us rejoice in these things this week. In Christ's good name, amen.